Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. That the enemy knows if you're a child of God. You may sometimes be unsure, but he gets it. He can tell. And and if you're a child of God, you're going to hear this. You're going to either hear, you're not really a child of God, or how could you, if you are a child of God, do such a thing or think such a thing or say such a thing? Time to begin Matthew chapter 4. In a message entitled Overcoming Temptation, Pastor Sam shows us two very important things about temptation. Not only where it comes from, but also how our Lord dealt with it when it came His way. Let's listen in. You need to know, first of all and foremost, that if you are a believer in Jesus, you will experience real temptation perhaps beyond anything you've experienced as an unbeliever, and here's why. When you're walking your own way, doing your own thing, you're pretty much are already there, you see. When I was a non-Christian, I didn't have to be tempted for sin. I looked for opportunity. I didn't call it sin back there, of course. You know, I, back in that time, I, I thought those things may be okay. Sometimes there was minor conviction, But for the most part, I didn't have to worry about temptation because I was completely yielded to it. But as a believer, I found that the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I grow in the Lord, the more I experience from the Lord, then the more I have to deal with this daily issue of of temptation. And you need to know that if you're a believer and you've been tempted and you've been beating yourself up and you're thinking, oh, I can't believe that thought came into my mind or how could I as a Christian think such a thing or say such a thing? You need to know that that temptations are going to come. And we'll talk about the fact that, well, we'll talk about how temptation works and how we overcome it because we have in these first 11 verses of chapter 4, a very powerful example by our Lord and Savior on how to deal in this oh-so-important area of temptation. Now, you need to know again, and we'll touch on a couple things, then we'll jump into the passage, that it's helpful to know, if you're fighting a war, what front you're fighting on. You need to know that as a believer, you will war in at least these three areas. You war with your own flesh, you war with the world, and you war with the devil. If you don't realize your own flesh is a real enemy, well, you need to get that. In fact, every day of my life, I wake up and I see my very worst enemy first off. I don't mean Pam. She's my very best friend. And uh, I'm so grateful for her. But I get up and I look in the mirror and I see that guy that's caused so many problems for me and so many problems for people I love. Why? Because I wasn't always wise about these things or, or submitted to them. And so my own flesh, though I, I'm like, hey, I just want to serve you, Lord, and grow in you. My flesh never really seems to agree. My flesh says, no, we want to do our thing. Because my flesh is, it's got multiple personalities. And, but, but we don't want to do God's thing. We want to do our own thing. 
And the bottom line is, you're war with your flesh. You also are at war with the world. Not necessarily the people in the world, but the philosophies, the mindset, the concepts that are out there that are absolutely unbiblical, un- ungodly. And then there's the devil. And, and the devil is a real enemy, a true adversary. And he does some of his best work or most nefarious, notorious, horrible work, I guess I should say, among those who don't believe in him. There are a lot of people being ravaged by the devil who deny a personal devil even exists. We just happened to be in Revelation chapter 12 on Wednesday night this last week, and we saw Satan, the devil, described as a dragon speaking of his danger, as a serpent speaking of his deceit, as the devil, the word means slanderer, as Satan, the adversary, as the accuser who stands before God, accusing us to God, who accuses us to ourselves, accuses us to one another. And you need to know that Satan is real and he is a real adversary. If not, then this whole thing would just be mythology. We are reading a historical uh, event in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus where he personally is dealing with the enemy. Well, we read first of all as we jump into chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. It's a minor point, but worth mentioning. There are no chapter divisions in the original text of Scripture. And so if we were reading this, not ending last week in chapter 3 and beginning this week in chapter 4, we would see that this followed right on the heels of Jesus' baptism. And as the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him in bodily form, in the form of a dove, And the Father speaks from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The very next thing that takes place is His temptation. And you need to know that that will happen to you. Those seasons, those times where God is moving wonderfully and heavens seem open to you and and you're just hearing the voice of God and rejoicing in the work of God and in the word of God, the enemy will immediately come and try to snatch away that joy, snatch away that truth. He'll come questioning the word of God. He'll come questioning your relationship with God. And it's worth noting, when he comes to Jesus, he does both. He questions God's word, and he questions the relationship of Jesus to the Father. He'd been tempted, we read, for these 40 days and nights. Sometimes we imagine it was 40 days, and then there was temptation. No, the tempter was there, and he was looking for opportunity to get an inroad into Jesus. And we're going to see how subtle and sly he can be. Well, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, let me ask you a question. Do you think Satan knew Jesus was the Son of God? Absolutely, without a doubt. Satan, and you got to get this, he was there at the birth of Jesus. He was the one moving on Herod to see that child destroyed. He was there at the baptism of Jesus and immediately springs upon him and tries to to turn him away from his commitment to now serve in the power of the Spirit and, and do the ministry that he came to this earth to do. 
He'd be there when Peter witnessed his great confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter hears from Jesus, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Peter, man, I had a revelation from heaven. The heavens are opened up. I'm, I just see him looking around saying, I got it. Did you hear that? Blessed am I. Revelation from heaven. And immediately the enemy begins to speak to Peter and then begins to speak through Peter. Why? Jesus says, hey, let me tell you what that means now. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. And the third day I'll rise again. What does Peter say? No way, Lord, this will never happen to you. And so at the moment of great exaltation, the enemy is right there trying to trip us up, trying to take us down, trying to tear us down. And so if he did it to Jesus, if he did it to Peter, you know he's going to do it to you. At times of great joy and and rejoicing, he's right there. And then times of physical struggle. I personally can relate to this right now because I'm going through some serious back pain. And, and I got to be honest with you guys, I'm a big baby. I got a low pain threshold. Pam suffers all the time with different physical things and she's tough. She really is. But I'm just like wimpy and, and that's it. And so, you know, here I am, my back's killing me for a week and I'm not doing anything I want to do except I get to still do this and I so praise God for it. But so many things I like to do can't happen and, and I start to get depressed. I know that happens to you if it happens to me. Not clinically depressed. I don't stop functioning. But but I'm just like, man, I can't believe that I'm, this is going on and it's going on and it's going on. And then I remember all the people that I know who are going through serious trials, not just a minor thing, not a small thing. But my point is this, when you're exalted mentally or emotionally or spiritually or, or when you're struggling physically, those are times where the enemy comes in. And we see both here. Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, depriving himself of food physically so he could focus with the Father spiritually. But it said afterward he was hungry. When you fast, if you get into it, you'll find that after the first three or four days, you actually lose your appetite. And, and you can go for quite a long time without any food. As long as you're getting water, there's some things you got to have. But when you begin to get hungry again, it's time to eat or your body's going to begin to live off its own organs. It's, it's a dangerous time physically. And I believe that's the point Jesus was at. It helps to know that because it makes the temptation more serious and more real to us. He was tempted and he was hungry. And then it says, when the tempter came, he said, if you are the son of God, hey, the father had just said, this is my beloved son. And now the tempter is saying, if you're the son, not really questioning if he was, but really reminding him, hey, I know who you are and I know what you're about. Command that these stones become bread. It's interesting that Satan here encourages Jesus to take a very legitimate need and meet it by illegitimate means. 
to, to take things into his own hands, not to trust the Father, not to wait on the Father, not to rely on the Father, but to just do it for himself. Hey, you can do it. You're the Son of God. You have power. You've got authority. You can turn stones to bread. I'm absolutely certain Jesus could have turned stones to bread. But the deal is, is it wasn't the Father suggesting it. It wasn't Jesus thinking of it. It was the enemy suggesting it. And Jesus isn't about to go for it. Now, why would he even make such a suggestion? Don't wait on the Father. Don't trust the Father. You need to do something yourself. Listen, that's worked so many times for Satan. Over and over as you read through the scripture, God makes promises and people believe them and they wait and trust and then their faith falters and they begin to take matters into their own hands. And we saw a powerful example of this as we considered Abraham, the father of the faith. We're told that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He is our example of Someone just like us, called by God, spoken to by God, and and he responded in faith. And God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to make you a mighty nation, and I'm going to bring the, the Messiah forth through you. All nations will be blessed by and in and through you. And Abraham believed it, and he believed it for a year. And he believed it for five years. And he believed it for ten years. He believed God. But at some point, he stopped trusting. He stopped waiting. And, and his wife comes to him. By the way, here's yet another point. Since Satan, unlike God, is not omnipresent, he can't be everywhere at once. He can only be one place at any given time. Since he's not omnipresent, he has to work either through demons or people. Now, I don't know how many demons there are, but I know it's easy for him to work through people. And uh, he worked through Peter. He works in Abraham's life through his own dear wife, Sarah. She comes and says, listen, maybe it's Hagar. Maybe this isn't going to happen. She doesn't use these words, but it really is where she was going. Maybe he didn't mean it literally, not you, not me. But he made the promises, and so she suggests, maybe you should go into Hagar and produce an offspring by her, and, and that will be our child. And Abraham listened to his wife. Now, there are lots of times, don't misunderstand, guys. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to your wife. 99.9999% of the time, when Pam gives me counsel, it's good counsel, and I need to listen. I thank God for a woman who sees people in the world different than I do and differently than I do. And she has a lot of wisdom and I, I thank God for her and for that. But if your wife comes up with a bad idea, you got to know that's a bad idea. That's an unbiblical idea. That's an unscriptural idea. And Abraham should have said, as we'll see our Lord say, hey, wait a minute. God said we were going to have a child. But Abraham instead listened to his wife, produced an offspring, a work of the flesh, Ishmael. Later, well, and I gotta, you know, I gotta understand, and you need to understand, this was a long and, and difficult trial for, for Abraham. 24 years later, the Lord appears and says, remember that promise? Still good. My word's always good. I always accomplish what I promise to do. So 
at 100 years old and his wife 90. And we covered all this not long ago, but I bring it to your remembrance because it's such a fitting illustration of a failure to do what we learn to do here, to remember God's word and to say, no, wait a minute. No, it, it's already, this has already been dealt with. And so Abraham failed, and so often we fail because the enemy comes, and he comes through people, and they make a suggestion. And rather than saying, wait, it is written, and that's how Jesus deals with temptation, and how grateful I am for that. The one person that could have said, hey, wait a minute, let me tell you a thing or two. See, Jesus didn't have to quote Scripture to Satan. Jesus is the author of Scripture, the word came through him. I mean, he could have just said, as he often did, you've heard it has been said, but I say unto you, either clarifying or amplifying the scripture. But, but what does Jesus do? He says, it is written. This is our first, second, and third line of defense. It's also our first, and second, and third line of offense. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, when the enemy attacks, when he makes his suggestions, we need to be able to say, it is written. You might note there in verse 4, it doesn't say it was written, though it was written. He says it is written because the tense in the Greek, the sense in the Greek is, it's been written and it still stands. Nothing's changed since God commanded Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus doesn't argue that he could do it, but he shouldn't do it. He doesn't deal in those areas. He just says, listen, here's what the word says. My suggestion to you first, and I'll make it again. You need to know the word of God. Study and show yourself approved unto God, workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But it's not enough to be familiar with it or even to memorize it. But we should be doing both. We should familiarize ourselves, then we, ourselves in the word, with the word, then we should memorize the word, but we have to know how it applies to our situations, to our trials, to our temptations. And so often that's where we fall short. We spend time reading it and we spend time trying to understand it and we want to make sure we're sound doctrinally and theologically and we take pride in the fact that we know the word and then we're tried or tempted and we don't apply what we've learned to our situation. That's what Jesus is teaching us to do here by example. Know the word, have it memorized, and then use the word of God when you're tempted. Now, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. How many of you guys familiar with the book of Deuteronomy? You've read it regularly. You've memorized most of it. A lot of you are saying, hey, I can't even say Deuteronomy. It's like Mr. Rogers. Remember, hey, can you say Deuteronomy? Sure. I like the way you say that. Uh, should have worn my sweater. But, but there are a lot of us that, that we kind of start going in the Old Testament. I'm certain I'm not going to embarrass you by saying how many of you started reading through and you said, I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to read through the entire scripture. We're still in Genesis and you've already dropped out. Well, next year I'm going to do it for sure. You need to know, just pick up where you are and keep going. Keep reading on. Catch up later. But, but Jesus knew Deuteronomy. And if you think for a moment, well, he was the son of God. 
Father just sort of uploaded it to him, you know? No, that never happened. It doesn't happen that way. Not for Jesus, not for you, not for me. He had to have learned and memorized the Word of God, just like we do. And then he understood, hey, this temptation, this is the enemy. This is the guy who is out to disqualify me. This is the guy who's out to destroy me. He comes to steal, to kill and destroy. And you need to know, again, that the enemy knows if you're a child of God. You may sometimes be unsure, but he gets it. He can tell. And and if you're a child of God, you're going to hear this. You're going to either hear, you're not really a child of God, or how could you, if you are a child of God, do such a thing or think such a thing or say such a thing? Because here's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to disqualify you for the work of ministry that God's called you to. He knows he can never have you. He knows you're sealed with the Spirit. He knows the Word. We'll see that in a minute. In a minute. Or even in a minute. (laughs) Satan has memorized God's Word too. Is that amazing? Do you think if the enemy of your soul took the time to memorize and misquote to make omissions that would serve his purposes, quoting from Psalm 91. Listen, he knows the word of God. And we'll see in a moment, he misuses it. He either adds to it or omits from it. He twists it, he distorts it. I remember years ago, Warren Wiersbe talking about how the cults use the scripture. He says they have the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. And that's exactly what's going on here. So so he says, hey, look, take matters into your own hands. Yeah, you don't have to wait on the Father. You don't have to trust the Father. You don't have to. No, Jesus says, it is written and remains so. Man shall not live by bread alone. Do we need bread? Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Was he most likely speaking physically or spiritually? I think he was most likely speaking physically. It was a time where people didn't have refrigeration. They they didn't have an easy way to keep food, spoiled quickly. And, and so they were in need of daily sustenance and provision. It applies spiritually. But, but when Jesus said, pray for your daily bread, he's acknowledging we need bread daily. Here he's saying, but we don't need the bread as much as we need the word. And of course, you know, we're to seek the word daily and, and plant the word daily, looking for that wonderful harvest that will come ultimately. He says, listen, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we understood that the word of God is the only spiritual food and to be nourished, you need to be in the word. You need to be chewing on it. You need to be taking it in. Jesus says at one point, if you continue in my word, that means not just that we keep on coming to church, but that we read it, we understand it, we we stay in it, make it a part of us, continue in my word, abide in it. He says, then you'll be my disciples and, and you'll know the truth. Why? God's word is truth and the truth will set you free, free from the temptations, the, the trials, so many things that the enemy could use against you. And so he comes, he makes his first suggestion. Jesus says, that's not going to happen. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
Later, he'll say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know what all those things were? In the context, it was food and, and clothing and, and, you know, the house over your head or roof over your head, whatever you need for sustenance and, and life. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's what Jesus was doing. He'd been seeking the Father, no doubt discussing the kingdom and righteousness, staying right with God. And all these things, all the necessary things, well, they will come to you. The Christian who is armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, will be prepared to face temptation. Not only are they less likely to be deceived, but they will understand that the existence of temptation does not mean they're not a child of God, but rather it is proof that they are. Join us next time as Pastor Sam completes his message, Overcoming Temptation. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.